Welcome to the Bible Unthumped. I'm David Kay. I'm not a scholar of the Bible, but I've spent my entire life reading and studying it, and I've found that many people don't really understand the Bible they're thumping. So on this podcast, we get into the story behind the stories that were collected into books that became the book we know today as the Bible. You can have faith and still ask questions. This is the Bible Unthumped. Hello all, we are in the middle of the story of the Garden of Eden, the first of two different creation stories that come out of ancient Israelite literature. Last week, we covered the story from the pre-agricultural setting that was emphasized in the opening line, and then Yahweh took some dirt and made a human man to work in his pleasure garden, but the man needed help, so Yahweh made animals, but they were not good helpers, so he made the woman, and she was a good helper in the garden. And they were naked, and they had permission to eat from all of the fruit trees in the garden except for the two that conveyed powers suited only to the gods, immortality and divine wisdom. Those trees would kill them. And we left off there. We talked about how the Israelite storyteller, who lived in the 8th or 9th century BC, based a lot of his characters and ideas on myths from the Mesopotamians and the other cultures who had already been writing down their creation stories for many centuries. So, with all of that said, we are ready for a new character in the story, starting at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. We meet the sneaky snake, whom the Bible calls the craftiest or wisest of all the animals that Yahweh had just made in his search for a helper for Adam. This word crafty, as a quick aside, is a play on the word naked that shows up in the previous verse. Arom, naked, Arum, crafty. The snake is an interesting character, but perhaps much less interesting in some ways than traditional readers would have you believe. This snake is not Satan. Let's be clear on that point. We know this because, as ancient Israelite literature is concerned, Satan had not been invented yet. In fact, the personification of an adversary of God called Satan would not come along in any Jewish texts for another three or four centuries in the late 500s BC, and it took several more centuries before Satan was ever described as truly evil, lord of the demons and the underworld and so forth. The literature about the divine bad guys is extensive and extremely varied in the ancient Jewish world, and a lot of different characters and concepts get conflated over time, especially in the Roman Catholic mind and eventually the evangelical mind, wrapped up into one being called Satan. And the snake in our story is one of the victims of these conflations and confusions. The storyteller is just talking about a snake. That's all, just a snake. And talking of snakes, this snake can talk, which is remarkable. Animals can't talk, unless they are from Narnia or Winnie the Pooh. And they can't talk in the Bible either, except twice. This is one of only two occasions in the Bible where a story includes a talking animal. The other talking animal is a donkey in the book of Numbers known as Balaam's ass. I will just leave this here for you as a teaser for now, but these two talking animals serve as bookends for our storyteller. Never mind what that means for now, I'll explain in some future episode. Just know that the sneaky snake in Eden and Balaam's ass have a literary, not literal, relationship to each other. In the last episode, when we were talking about magic plants in ancient Near Eastern mythology, 
We noted that two special plants were connected to snakes. A bad snake lived in the halupu tree planted by the Sumerian goddess Inanna, and a sneaky snake stole the plant of immortality from Gilgamesh in the famous Mesopotamian epic. And these snake stories are many centuries older than the Garden of Eden story. In addition, snakes feature prominently in the mythic stories of Egypt, where they were representations of both good and evil, and in Canaan, where there were a number of snake cults prior to the emergence of the Israelites. Snakes were often connected to powers of immortality because of how they shed their skins to regain youthfulness. Bottom line, snakes are singled out among animals as a common character in ancient Near Eastern storytelling. Our storyteller offers no exception. The story needs a snake. In the first part of chapter 3, the talking snake has a conversation with the woman in the garden, in which he tells her that Yahweh has lied when he said that the magic fruit from the Tree of Wisdom would kill them. The snake tells her instead that the fruit of the tree would make them wise, just like gods are wise. So she's tempted and eats some fruit, and she gets Adam to eat some fruit too. Now, let's pause to note that this forbidden fruit is not specified. It is not said to be an apple. The apple conflation became popular during the Middle Ages because in Latin, the word malum with a long a means apple, and the word malum with a short a means evil. Malum and malum and the similarity proved irresistible to Latin-speaking interpreters of the story. This is merely a linguistic coincidence in a way later translation in a different language that has no basis in the original Hebrew. It's just a Latin thing. Various creative readers through the centuries have also specifically identified this generic fruit as figs, grapes, pomegranates, bananas, and even mushrooms or wheat. The thyroid cartilage, often prominent in males, is called the Adam's apple, with the idea that Adam got some fruit stuck in his throat. Okay, so what happens when Adam and Eve eat the fruit? This was probably never emphasized to you in Sunday school, but it turns out that the snake told the truth to them, and Yahweh had not. Yahweh told them that the fruit would kill them immediately, but that didn't happen. The snake told them that the fruit would make them wise like gods, and that is precisely what does happen. Adam and Eve receive an illumination, an awareness, or a conscience. They receive wisdom that is supposed to belong only to the gods, not humans. And off the bat, they realize in their new wisdom that they are naked and that this is shameful. They make some loincloths for themselves out of proverbial fig leaves. Now the god Yahweh shows up in verse 8, and in this scene we see an especially anthropomorphized god. He acts very human-like, that is. Yahweh is out on a stroll in his pleasure garden, but he can't seem to find the humans who he'd put to work tending the garden. They had heard him coming, and since they were naked, they had hidden from him. God calls out to them, and so they come out of hiding. He puts two and two together. They know they are naked, so they must have gained this awareness by eating from the strictly forbidden tree of knowledge or wisdom. They have become wise like gods. So Yahweh gets mad. And now we get the blame game. Adam blames Eve for the fact that he ate the fruit, and Eve blames the snake. Yahweh punishes each of them in turn, 
starting with the snake. God curses the snake, making it, very literally, the lowest of all the animals he'd made, making it crawl and eat dirt. And here we get the dirt theme again, if you remember from the last episode. In addition, the snake would be cursed to be evermore in conflict with humans. We get a notable verse here, Genesis 3.15. Translated literally, it says to the snake, The offspring of the woman will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. And by the 2nd century AD, about 900 years after the story was written, this verse became very popularly interpreted as having predicted Jesus and his defeat of Satan at either the crucifixion or in the emergence of the church. This verse is called the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel, the first time in the Bible that we are presumed to get a foretaste of the Christ message. In the 8th century BC, however, the readers knew nothing of Satan or Jesus or church or gospel, so for them, the verse was merely saying that snakes were cursed to be despicable crawling creatures low to the ground, getting trampled on by humans and then biting back at their heels. Part of the snake's curse was to be in conflict with humans. After cursing the snake, Yahweh doles out a punishment for the woman in verse 16. It basically has two parts. One, she is to be subordinate to her husband. And two, she will have pain the text uses the word for pain twice, in giving birth to children, which is her primary job. Yes, the Bible contains verses about patriarchy, surprise! And yes, women's main task in the ancient patriarchal world was to have kids. Then Yahweh turns to punish the man. The punishment actually starts with Yahweh cursing the ground. A quick note that, if we are being technical, God never curses the humans, either the woman or the man. He punishes them, but not curses. His curses are for the snake and the ground, for what that might be worth. The ground is cursed. Remember that the word for ground or soil is Adama, related to Adam or Adam, which means man. The man was made from the dirt. He's a dirt man. And that connection becomes important again at this point in the story. The man will not just pick fruit anymore for his food. His punishment is to battle against the thorns and weeds from the cursed ground in order to eat crops grown in the dirt for the rest of his life. This work will be painful. We see again the word for pain. So, let me connect the dots. The punishment for the woman is pain in doing her childbearing work. The punishment for the man is pain in doing farm labor so that he can eat. Work sucks and will be painful for both sexes in their respective roles. You've heard the phrase, often at funerals, that people go from dust to dust, which comes from the punishment here of the man. I don't like the translation dust, as we are still talking in context about soil, earth, dirt. Dirt is a better translation and is consistent with the themes of the story. Regardless, this dust to dust, or dirt-to-dirt dirt funeral phrase harkens back to this story where humans, including woman, are made out of dirt and then the idea goes are buried back in the dirt when they die. But the original audience of this story wouldn't have heard any reference to death or funeral. They would have heard about how Yahweh took the man made of dirt and returned him to the dirt 
as a farm laborer. Remember that the woman wasn't made of dirt. She was made from a rib. So this punishment is specifically for the man. That's what dust to dust meant. He was made of dirt, and then at the end of the story, punished to work in the dirt. Dirt to dirt. Let's close the loop on this story. The setting of the story in the first lines, which is chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, is described as a time and place when there were no crops and no farmers. We started the story without farming. When we end the story, we now have farming. This story is an etiology for agriculture, an origin story for human laborers making food from dirt. And to connect this to the widespread early mythologies of the ancient Near East where human work in farm labor is a major theme helps make this story make sense. We don't talk much about farming in Sunday school, but it is pretty much the central theme of the Garden of Eden story and of much ancient storytelling generally. In the last act of the story, Yahweh clothes these humans in some proper animal skin coats, or some such, which we might interpret as an act of compassion. But then he banishes them from his pleasure garden. They will never be allowed back into the Garden of Eden, and Yahweh makes sure of it by putting an armed guard of cherubim at the garden gate. Some translations will translate cherubim as angel, but this is a bad translation because, just like Satan, angels don't come along for many centuries after the story was written. Angel is a Greek word meaning messenger, and these creatures guarding the gates of Eden are not messengers. Cherubim were more like henchmen of the gods, guardians who carried the throne of God. That's just a side note. If your Bible says angel, cross it out and put the word cherubim back in there. In this final act, Yahweh kicks Adam and Eve out of Eden for a very specific reason that is not merely about punishment. They had already become like gods in one respect, obtaining divine wisdom from the first tree. But remember that there's a second magical powerful tree in the garden, the one that makes people immortal. In paraphrase, verse 22 reads, Then the god Yahweh said, The human has become like one of us, gaining divine wisdom. What if he also eats from the tree of life and lives forever? These humans are not going to be given the opportunity to become fully the equals of the gods. They may be wise, but they will not be immortal. No way, they have to leave the garden, kept away from the other tree. Quickly notice here that the humans were made mortal. They started out that way. Otherwise, the story of this second tree wouldn't make any sense. I say this because sometimes you hear that Adam and Eve were immortal at first, and that eating the fruit caused them to become mortal. That's not in the story. Last note on this kicking out part of the story. God refers to us. We don't want the humans to become like us, he says. Plural. It's not exactly clear who Yahweh is talking to, but it certainly seems like he is talking to other gods. Many centuries later, in the Christian era, it became common to read this passage as though God the Father was talking to the other members of the Trinity, the Son and the Holy Ghost. But since the Trinity wasn't really a thing until a few centuries after Christ, that is clearly not how the original storyteller would have meant it. Remember that the Israelites were not yet monotheists in the 8th and 9th centuries BC. They believed in lots of other gods gods of other nations that they are forbidden to worship. 
Scholars feel confident in asserting that this story, at this stage in history, probably assumes that the god Yahweh is talking to other gods when he says the mortals should not become immortal like us. Now, we must finally address specific interpretations that were imposed on this story long after it was written. We've already mentioned apples and Satan and angels and gospel messages and the Trinitarian God, all things that are not in the story that folks assume are in the story. In Roman Catholicism and later in Protestantism, this story has often been understood to tell us the origins of evil, sin and all the cruelties and disasters of the world including in the natural world, can be traced back to eating forbidden fruit. These are the doctrines of the fall, of how Adam separated humans from God, made them inclined to do bad things through the inheritance of original sin. It is how death and sadness infected the world. It feels important to me to note as we wrap up this episode that none of these major doctrines would have entered the minds of the Israelite audience for even a moment. These beliefs are only connected to the Garden of Eden because they were later read back onto the story from a much later point in history. If you had told the original storyteller that Satan had caused humans to sin and that all of humanity had fallen from grace, infected by a general depravity, and were thrown out of God's presence, and that death and every human sorrow traced back to the Garden, that storyteller would absolutely be scratching his head. That's not the Bible story he told. He was talking about farming and how hard work sucked and how humans came to be wise like gods but still mortal, unlike gods. The end. Okay, let's call it a day at this point. In the next episode, we are going to turn back a few pages to the other creation story in your Bible, the one in which the world was made in seven days. So I hope you will stay tuned for that. As always, please share and say nice things about this podcast wherever you listen. Less thumping, more understanding. See you next time.